All right, as you know, we are in the middle of a series called The Compassion of God. And in this series, we're taking the time to look at different aspects of God's compassion and get to see our God for who he is. And if you remember, one week we will look at the characteristic of his compassion and how it should affect us. And then the following week, we will look at how Jesus lived it out perfectly in his life and then how we should be imitating Jesus. So it's, each characteristic has been a two-part, two-weeks kind of part of a, a series, if you will. Um, and when we look at Jesus imitating God, we then look at how we are to imitate Jesus. Because when we do, we image God. Because remember, we've been talking about to imitate Jesus is to imitate God because Jesus is exactly like God. Which is a great thing because we were created in the very first place to image God. So right before I left, we talked about the graciousness of God. Um, That was a characteristic that we focused on, and God's graciousness is part of God's compassion towards us. And we talked about how God's graciousness is displayed to us by his not punishing us according to what our sins deserve. Remember we talked about that? We talked about the city of Nineveh. Remember the Ninevites? They were an incredibly wicked and just horrible city doing horrible, wicked, and vile things. And yet Jonah went and preached to them and they repented and God withheld his punishment. He showed them his graciousness. And it's a a perfect example of God doing that, not punishing them according to what they deserve. Well, today we're gonna look at how Jesus imitated God by showing graciousness to the people he ministered to. And to do so, I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, okay? Uh, If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 8. Now, this is a familiar story for most of you, okay? Many of you will have heard this story before, and that's always kind of a danger for us. Uh, So often in church service, when the pastor gets up and he starts preaching on a story that we've heard before, before, guess what we do? We're kind of like, I've heard this before. And we check out and we think about everything but what's being talked about. So I'm going to ask, please don't do that this morning. In fact, I'm going to ask you today to pretend, pretend that this is the very first time you've heard this story. Pretend you've never heard this story before. I want you to smell the smells. I want you to hear the sounds. I want you to feel the emotions as if you were there, okay? Um, John chapter 8. Now, before we get into the story, I have to mention something. And for some of you, this may not interest you at all. This may be actually a very boring detail um, that you're wondering why I'm even mentioning. And if that's you, uh, I give you permission to just check out for a bit, okay? So like a hypnotist, I'm gonna, you can just check out. And the rest of you, today, actually, the passage we're gonna talk about today, John 11, one through eight, uh, one through 11, John 8, one through 11, um, For many years, this has been a hot debate over scholars. You see, this passage is actually not in the original manuscripts. Most of the earliest ancient Greek manuscripts omit this section of John. Uh, Many later manuscripts, they mark this section with kind of these these asterisks, if you will. Uh, One group of manuscripts actually inserts this section in the book of Luke. couple of manuscripts have this story in John chapter 21, and there's one manuscript that actually puts it right after uh, John 7, 36. So that's kind of interesting, kind of weird. So some scholars, very few scholars, but some don't believe that this passage should actually even belong in Scripture because it isn't in the original earliest ones. However, most scholars, and all the ones I trust and study from, they believe that it should be in Scripture. 
Um, they might be ignorant as to where it should be placed. You know, they don't know if it's John 7, 21 or Luke. They don't know. But they believe it totally belongs there. Uh, they believe it truly did happen, and it should therefore be in Scripture. Okay? So I, I just wanted to mention that interesting bit of information about this exact story and passage. Now, on a side note, something that I find interesting as well, Augustine and a guy named Ambrose, they were two early church fathers, they didn't believe that it should be in Scripture. And you want to know why? Had nothing to do with the early manuscript thing. That wasn't the issue. The reason they didn't think it should be in Scripture is because they think that it makes Jesus look like a softy on sin. They, they think that it makes Jesus look like he's looking the other way to sexual sin. And they didn't like that, and so they wanted to have it removed. And I find that actually pretty fascinating, especially with what we're going to talk about today. Okay? So those of you who have checked out, get back with me. John chapter 8. Here we go. Kind of weird, but the story actually starts in the very final verse of chapter 7, verse 53. I don't know why they did the chapter break there, but here we go. Then they all went home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now, can you picture that? Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's during the Feast of Tabernacles, and he's teaching. And I mean, he is bringing it. He is laying it down, okay? He is firing on all eight cylinders, and he is firing up the scribes. He's firing up the teacher's law. The Pharisees are all up in arms. They don't like what Jesus is saying. In fact, all of chapter 7, it's a bit chaotic. They're trying to arrest him, but some people don't think he should be arrested. Some think he does. So it's all back and forth. But this certain day, he gets done teaching, and it says everyone goes home, and Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. And as you know, Jesus doesn't have his own home, so he decides to go and just camp out under the stars and trees, and his disciples may or may not have been with him. I'm not sure. It doesn't say in the text. Um, but the next day, he goes back to the temple, and he's at this beautiful temple teaching. He begins teaching. And a crowd starts to gather. And I mean, people love Jesus' teaching. He taught as someone who had authority. They loved his teaching. They've never heard a teacher like him before. He's incredible. And so when he starts teaching, a huge crowd begins to gather. But the scribes and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they hated it. They hated him. And they were jealous that all the people gathered around Jesus and followed him, so much so that they were constantly against him, which honestly, if I were Jesus, that'd be hard to handle. Now, another thing about these Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law, they all wore special clothing so that you could spot them in the crowd. They, they liked to stand out and act all pompous in their clothing so that they stood out from everybody else. And Jesus could literally, by what they were wearing, spot them, you know, in his crowd that he was teaching, knowing that these people wearing his clothing were probably against him. I can imagine Jesus teaching and seeing a group come up and be like, oh boy, here we go. Okay? It isn't preaching to a crowd when you know that that crowd, in that crowd, are people who are flat out against you. One time I had this couple that um, I, almost after every sermon, they would send me an email and say, we completely disagree with what you said, and blah, blah, blah. They would talk about the sermon. Every Sunday, it was the same thing. And remember, one Sunday, they eventually sent me an email and says, we feel like you are grieving the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, time out. If you really think I'm grieving the Holy Spirit, you need to go to the elders uh, because I shouldn't be a pastor of Whitestone if I'm grieving the Holy Spirit. That would be terrible. So uh, please, you know, work it out with the elders, and I'll just submit to whatever they have. 
But, you know, while I was preaching to them, or while I was preaching, they would come every Sunday, and they would sit right about there, right where you are, Brent. And, and so I'd be preaching, you know, sermon. I'd see them like, oh, boy, they probably don't like what I'm having to say and preach. Oh, boy, they probably don't like that either. And it's really hard to preach to someone who's against you. Well, Jesus had that all the time, okay? And he's teaching the crowds on this specific day. And all of a sudden, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Now, can you imagine that? I've never had had sermons interrupted by many things. I mean, I've had cell phones ringing so loud that we actually had to stop and wait for the person to answer. Um, I've had Siri respond. Siri would go, I did not understand. Can you please repeat that? Um, I've had kids running up onto the stage. We've had thunder hit so hard that it, it shook us up. But I've never had a sermon interrupted by this. Can you imagine that? Let's just forget all the spiritual stuff just for a second and think about this happening. Imagine yourself in that crowd. Talk about an incredibly rude thing to do when someone is in the midst of teaching. Listen, Jesus isn't teaching fractions for third grade mathematics. Now, those might be important, but compared to what Jesus is talking about, He's teaching about the kingdom of God. He's teaching about how God is working with mankind and how salvation is being offered to those who believe in him. This is important stuff. And they come in and they interrupt this teaching time in an incredibly rude way. Now, they could have waited until Jesus was done and then talked to him in private. They could have done a lot of things differently, but instead they rudely just bust in right into the middle of this incredibly important teaching time. Which makes sense, because tell me, third service, who do you think ultimately is behind this? Who's the puppet master behind these religious authorities? Satan, right? The kingdom of darkness. And the kingdom of darkness at every turn was trying to thwart the plans of God. And this was one of its plans. The Apostle Paul says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It says that it's against rulers, it's against authorities, it's against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Don't be tricked. This is a spiritual battle with humans being used as pawns. Anyways, they interrupt Jesus and they they bring this woman caught in adultery, caught in it, caught in the act. And they say to Jesus, so this woman was caught in the act of adultery, Jesus, and in the law of Moses, we are commanded to stone such women. What do you say about this, Jesus? Now, I want to pause here for a second, and I want you to think about that phrase. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. Just think about that for a second. And I want to show you in the law of Moses that the the passage they're referring to that was commanded way back in the Old Testament Because we're going to see that what they're saying is true, and yet it's incomplete. Let me show you. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Can I ask you something? Look at that verse right there and tell me how many people are supposed to be put to death in this scenario. Two, right? The woman and the man. So tell me, if this woman was caught in the act, tell me, where in this story is the man? Where's the man? It doesn't say that she was caught stealing a car. 
If that was the case, she could have done that alone. It doesn't say that she was robbing a bank. She could have done that alone. No, it says that she was caught in the act of adultery. And I don't know what world they come from, but in the world we're from, it takes two persons to commit adultery, a man and a woman. And I only see a woman in this story. Where is the man? Well, that's the crazy part. The text doesn't say. It says that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees caught a woman in adultery and grabbed her and threw her before Jesus and said, the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. No, it doesn't. It says in the law of Moses that both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Where's the man at? Something weird is going on. Now, did you know that in Jewish law, for someone to be put to death executed by capital punishment, as these leaders were suggesting, there had to be two witnesses who saw the act, literally witnessed the act. And their stories had to be perfectly aligned. The details had to be perfectly matched. They had to see the act being committed. Now, I'm not trying to be graphic or crass. This was the law. And the law declared that they literally had to see the actual movements happening and there could not be any other explanation for these movements. It had to be clear, absolutely clear, that adultery was being committed. In fact, in Jewish law, even if someone saw a man and woman walking out of a bedroom together, that wasn't enough evidence. In fact, they could be seen both laying in a bed together. That was not enough evidence. That wasn't enough proof. They literally had to be seen in the act of adultery by two witnesses. Now, I mentioned all that because for this woman to have been caught in the act, it appears that this whole situation was set up. And two spies had to have been planted in the perfect spot at the perfect time to catch this act. It is not a stretch to think that this whole thing was literally set up just to try to bring her before Jesus and they just let the man go. I remember who's behind it. But why? Why in the world would these men do this to this woman and Jesus? I'll tell you why. The passage tells us, verse 6, it says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. You see, Jesus is being attacked both spiritually and physically. The unseen realm of darkness is coming against him, and the physical realm of the religious leaders are coming against them. They're trying to trap him. And you see, here's, here's what they're thinking. If Jesus just says, guys, just let her go. Come on, let her go. Then they could come against him and accuse Jesus of breaking the law. They'd say, oh, okay, let her go? Law of Moses says to kill her says to stoner, and you say, let her go. Well, wait a minute here. You said in the Sermon on the Mount that you came to fulfill the law and to uphold the law, and now you're going to break it? So you're a liar. And boom, they could accuse him. Also, on top of that, Israel was under Roman law at the time, and Roman law prohibited anyone from killing someone without a court of law. A judge had to make the decision or else it would be considered murder. And Jesus did not have the authority as a man under Roman law to sentence anybody to death. Therefore, if Jesus had answered that the woman was to be stoned, he would have to be breaking the Roman law. And if he broke Roman law, then they would have a reason to accuse him. 
Now, not only this, but the act of stoning this woman would have gone against the mercy and grace and forgiveness that he'd been preaching about. And if he simply said, yeah, go ahead and kill her. Yep, stone her. Put this woman to death. Then they would have come against him and said, seriously, you want us to kill her? You call yourself a loving, gentle, forgiving shepherd. You say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I'll give you rest. This girl is clearly weary and heavy burden. Where's the equity in killing someone who simply committed a sexual act? If Jesus went that route, the common people who followed him would look down on him. The religious authorities might have liked killing this girl, but not the common people, not the lowly people. That would have broken their hearts because Jesus had told them that he had come for the sinners, not the righteous. He'd come to save them, not put them to death. And so they would have been hurt by him and what he had taught them wouldn't mean anything anymore. And this would have been a serious deal for them. So this is a serious dilemma. The leaders were trying to trap him. They're trying to put him in a real quandary. And I think these guys are thinking to themselves like, oh, sweet daddy, we got him. We got him, boys. He's, he's in a corner. He's got nowhere to go. He's got no wiggle room. Kind of like my son. I got a son who's a great debater. And sometimes in our, you know, conversations, our debates, he'll pin me in a corner and be like, oh, what are you going to say there? What are you going to say there, huh? You can't say anything. And I was like, uh, it ticks me off. Well, I can picture this going on. They seemingly have Jesus over a barrel. And if you remember, they've tried this before with Jesus. Remember? They said, should we be paying the Roman taxes? What do you have to say about that? So Jesus says, well, do you happen to have one of those coins? And so they're like, yeah. And they hand him a coin. And he goes, can you tell me whose picture is on that coin? I'm having a hard time seeing it here. Can you tell me? And they're like, uh, it's a picture of Caesar. And he goes, well, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But give to God what belongs to God. And they walked away ticked. Well, they haven't learned their lesson. And here they are trying again to trap Jesus. And can I just say, you cannot trap Jesus. You can't. You can't trap the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? Amen. It's impossible to trap Jesus. But you know what? Here they are. They're going to try. What are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to do? Let's keep reading. Now, <clears throat> I don't know, before we start reading, I don't know about you, but if I was in a situation, I'd be like, the first thing I'm going to do is to wipe that little smug look off your face. Like, how dare you come into my time of teaching and interrupt me while I'm doing the Lord's work? How dare you thoroughly humiliate this woman? How dare you try to trap me? I mean, I'd probably go off on these guys. But he doesn't. Look at what he does. It says, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. They come up to Jesus like, what do you have to say, Jesus? And he goes down. See how awkward it feels? That's how the crowd must have felt. Like I can imagine him going, what's going on? Why is he just writing on the ground? I mean, they're, they're breathlessly waiting for Jesus to respond, and he doesn't. He's just writing on the ground. Now, the accusers, they don't stop. They keep yelling, and they're coming at Jesus like, what are you going to say, Jesus? What are you going to say? They've set the trap, and they're waiting for Jesus to walk right into it. And all Jesus does is bend down and write on the ground with his finger. Strange, right? I don't know, but the next time I, I 
My wife catches me in a mistake. I may try it. <laughs> you said you were going to pay the bill, and it says here that the bill wasn't paid, and now there's a late fee. Did you pay the bill or didn't you pay the bill? <laughs> I'm going to try it. I don't know. But this is what Jesus is doing. Let's keep reading. It says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they keep coming against him. They're questioning him over and over and over. And Jesus stands up and he goes, and, and you got to understand, this is the first time Jesus speaks in this whole situation. These are the first words that are coming out of his mouth. And he says, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw the stone. If any of you are sinless, go ahead and throw the stone. If any of you are perfectly righteous, I'm giving you permission to kill her. Go ahead. This is the only time Jesus speaks to these leaders. And then he goes back down to the ground and he starts writing with his finger. Once again, he stoops down. This, this whole interchange, he isn't bowing up to these guys. He isn't standing tall and tough and trying to intimidate them. No, he stoops down. He, he stoops down. He, he takes a lowly position, and he starts writing on the ground with his finger. Now, many people want to know what he's writing on the ground with his finger. And unfortunately, Scripture doesn't tell us. Man, I wish it did. And there are all sorts of ideas, all sorts of suggestions. Bible scholars have tried to come up with all sorts of some things. You know, some think he was writing down the name of the man who wasn't there. Well, what about Tommy? Where's Tommy in this whole mix? You know, who knows? Some think that he, uh, you know, was writing down the names of the leaders that were there and their sins that they committed. Some think he was just doodling. But no one knows. Some actually people think it's wrong to actually try to guess. Um, if God hasn't told us, then we don't need to know. But I don't necessarily think that's the approach we have to take. I think it's fun to try to guess. And uh, a lot of people have really good ideas. And, and apparently, um, it's okay to guess because many scholars do. But there are some details given to us in this story that are kind of unique to me. And who knows? I may be dead wrong with this. But check this out. Jesus stoops down... And he writes in the ground with his what? His finger, right? And tell me, third service, how many times does he do this? Twice, right? Twice he stoops down and he writes with his finger. Now, there is only one other time in Scripture that I'm aware of where God writes something with his finger. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? The Ten Commandments. Yeah, in Exodus, when God freed his people from Egyptian slavery, and he's going to give them the laws to live by, in scriptures it says that he came down. He came down. He didn't stay way up in the heavens. He came down to the mountain with Moses, and he wrote the law on the stone tablets for the Israelites to follow. And it says in scripture that he wrote the law on the stone tablets with his finger. Now, Moses takes those tablets and he climbs down the mountain and when he gets to the camp, he sees that they're all having this big old party and they're worshiping a, a golden calf and they're involved in all this idolatry and he gets ticked off and he throws the tablets down and they all break. So later he goes back up to the mountain and God once again comes down and it says in scripture, he once again wrote the law on the tablets with his finger. Not once, 
but twice. Isn't that interesting? In John it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and more specifically, the Word, what? Was God. God. So who came down on that mountain and wrote the law on those tablets with his finger? Yahweh did. God did. And Jesus was God in the flesh. And Jesus stoops down twice, and with, with his finger, he writes, just maybe as a visual of the law he created. What are you guys, idiots? Are you fools? What do you think, you can trap me in the law I created? That isn't the law of Moses. It's my law. I wrote it. I created it. I came up with it. And you're a fool to think that you can trap me with the law that I wrote twice. You can't trap me with my own law. Now at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now, I want to pause for a second, and let's just focus on this woman. Can you imagine how the woman felt here? She is an object of complete and utter shame, completely humiliated, and she technically is inches from death. The law has condemned her, and she knows it. And Jesus speaks one sentence one sentence, one sentence to these religious leaders, and one by one, they begin to walk away. The older ones first. Either they had more sense or they had more sins. So they're like, I'm out of here. The young ones probably hung around still trying to think how they could take down Jesus, but even they eventually just leave and walk away. Mission failed. Now, never mind that he completely destroyed their trap. Never mind that he exposes their wicked actions. But his words cut right through their own self-righteousness and they realize that they have no right to throw the stone. And everyone leaves until only Jesus was left with this woman standing there. Now let's keep reading. It says, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she said. Jesus stands up, and the second time he speaks, he speaks to the woman. In this whole sermon, we're trying to get to the woman because what this woman is about to experience is the topic of this entire sermon. The compassion of God is going to be poured out on this woman through the graciousness of Jesus. Pay attention to this. Jesus stands up, and he says, where is everybody? Is there no one to condemn you? Is there no one to throw a stone at you? Is there anyone? Does anyone have a legal standing to put you to death? Where are they all? There was a huge group here before. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And the woman says, no one, Lord. Now, let me tell you something. In the entire group of religious leaders, no one in that entire group was righteous enough to throw that stone. Not one single person in that group was holy enough or righteous enough or perfect enough to pick up that stone and throw it at this woman. Not one. And so they each had to drop their stones and walk away. Why? Because they were sinners. They were sinners too. Each and every single one of them had committed sins in their life. So not one of them could throw the stone of condemnation. Not one of them. So they all left. But listen, listen to me. There is one person in that crowd who could throw the stone. 
There is one person in that crowd who is righteous enough, who is holy enough, who is perfect enough that would be able to pick up a stone and throw it at this woman, and he had every right to put her to death. There is one person, and that one person looks this woman in the eye. He looks through her humiliation. He looks through all of her pain. He looks through all of her suffering, looks through all of her hurt, all the damage to her reputation. He looks through all the sin in her life, all the mistakes she's made, and the one person who could pick up and throw that stone of condemnation, he looks her in the eyes and he says, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Do you see what I'm seeing here? The graciousness of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus. See that? What I'm seeing here is the gospel in action. The law said that this woman deserves to die. She deserves death. And Jesus stands between her and the law and in a sense absorbs the punishment and he releases her. Like we saw in the sermon three weeks ago, God does not punish us according to what our sins deserve. That's the gospel. You see, the law has condemned each and every single one of us in this room. In a very real way, we are just like that woman. I mean, just take a look at the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me. Guys, let me tell you something. If you love something or someone more than Jesus, you've already broken that law. You shall not covet. If you've ever been jealous in your life at any point, you've broken that law. You shall not lie. We've all done that at some point. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. And you might say, well, I've never done that. Oh, yeah? Jesus says, if you've lusted after a woman in your own mind, you've committed adultery in your heart. You've blown that one. And we could go through this point by point, one by one, and show you how we have all broken the law. And I'm sorry, but the penalty of breaking that law is what? Say it with me. Death. You and I deserve death. But Jesus says, I did not come into this world to condemn you, but I came to save you. And on that cross, Jesus took that punishment. He took that condemnation. He took the wrath of God upon himself, and he paid for it so he could set us free. Amen? That's the graciousness of Jesus. Look at what he says to the woman again. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. You see, Jesus doesn't just excuse our sins. He paid for them. He doesn't just turn a blind eye to our sins and ignore our sins. No, he paid for our sins. He endured the brunt of our sins. He endured the penalty of them. And out of his compassion for us, he poured out his graciousness on us and released us from our debt. Now listen, the proper response to the grace of Jesus is to leave our life of sin. Do you hear that? It's not just to keep sinning. It's not to just keep doing what you've been doing. That isn't the purpose of grace. No, it says, go now and leave your life of sin. The proper response to the graciousness of Jesus is to stop sinning and obey God. And the good news is that the graciousness of Jesus provides us a way out of our sins. I've been mentioning in this series how so many of us are sitting in our prison cells. 
And we're just, we're rejecting the compassion of God. We've been rejecting the forgiveness of God. We've been rejecting the long-suffering of God. We've been rejecting the, the graciousness of our God. And we sit in our little prison cells, buying into all the lies that the enemy fe feeds us. And you know, so I'm just not good enough. I'm too much of a failure. I've sinned way too much. I've made way too many mistakes. I keep going back to the same addictions. And I keep hurting all the people in my life. And I'm just one big screw up. And so I deserve this. This prison cell, it's all I deserve. Yeah, it looks great outside that window, but <laughs> there's no way with my life that I'll ever be allowed to get out there. If that is you, then you haven't encountered grace. You see, listen to me. Grace has a name, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus says, you need to hear this this morning. Jesus says, I do not condemn you. I don't condemn you. I didn't come into this world to condemn it. I came to save it. I don't condemn you. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For I and the Father are one. I am the exact representation of the Father. I talk like the Father. I act like the Father. I'm just like the Father. And so if I don't condemn you, then guess what? My Father doesn't condemn you either. Whystone, can I encourage you? Reach for the hands of grace. Reach for the hands of Jesus and, and let him lead you out of your prison cell. He doesn't condemn you. He's come to rescue you so that you can leave your life of sin and so that you can step into a life of righteousness and peace. Amen? Real quick, I want to mention this. Did you pay attention to how Jesus was addressed in this story? When, when the teachers of the law and the Pharisees approach Jesus, they call him teacher, or rabbi, because that's how they see him. He's just a teacher, no one special. He's just teacher. But did you notice what the woman calls Jesus? She addresses him as Lord. In the Greek, it says kudios, which means supreme leader, supreme in authority. She calls him Lord. In this horrible encounter of shame and guilt and humiliation, she encounters Jesus, and she recognizes him not as just a teacher, not as just a rabbi, but as Lord, and more specifically, her Lord. And her Lord did not condemn her. Instead, he offered her graciousness. Isn't that beautiful? The Word of God says that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. To those who believe in Jesus, there is no condemnation. Jesus, like he did for this woman, he takes it from us. Amen? Amen? Now, there might be some of you here today who are thinking to yourself, well, I don't believe in Jesus. Okay, that's fine. That's your choice. But I guarantee you that you will believe in him when you die. And you will not have a choice then. Because you will see him face to face. And let me warn you, when you meet him after death, it will not be as your savior, it will be as your judge. He will not be offering you his graciousness, he will be giving you his judgment. I want to remind you that scripture says, today is the day of salvation. 
Believe in him today. Believe in your savior today. Receive his grace and compassion today. Tomorrow may be too late. Reach your hands to Jesus and let him lead you out of your prison today. Now, because I've talked so long, I haven't talked about how we should be imitating Jesus the same way as he imitated his father. So very quickly, let me just say this. Let's you and I be the hands of Jesus. When people are sinking in their darkness and in their suffering and in their hurt and in their despair and in their sin, let's not sit around like these little religious leaders in the story and heap insult and condemnation on them. No, let's reach out our hands like Jesus and love them and show them grace. You see that hand up there on the screen? Let's us be that hand. Let's be the hands of Jesus. Let's show them the compassion of Jesus, which happens to be the compassion of the Father as well. And I'll tell you, in my opinion, the, the church as a whole has failed miserably at this around the world. We are great at condemning. We're super great at judging. And we're amazing at pointing the finger. But we're not so great at offering the hand of grace. Remember, we're not worthy to throw the stones of condemnation at anyone. There's only one who's righteous enough. There's only one who's holy enough. There's only one who's perfect enough. And that's Jesus. And Jesus says, I do not condemn you. Let's imitate him, amen? Here's our homework. Is there anyone in your life that you've condemned and judged? If you can't think of him, ask the Spirit of God. He'll, he'll bring that person to mind. Remember, you're not Jesus. You do not have the right to throw the stone of condemnation. And so confess having done that, and if God leads, work towards healing that hurt that you've caused with that person. You can do a lot of damage through judging and condemnation. And this week, I want you to practice showing the graciousness of God through your words and through your actions to the broken people around you. And trust me, there are many of them. Let's be Jesus. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for my Whitestone family. Most of all, God, I want to thank you for Jesus who came to this earth and he perfectly imitated you. He was a perfect example of you, Heavenly Father. I pray for every single one of us here. Those who believe in you, Jesus, may we represent you well and may we imitate you in our words and our actions. And may we offer the graciousness that you've offered us to the world around us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Let it be so. Amen. Guys, I love you. If any of you would like to be prayed for, Suzanne would love to pray with you this morning. Otherwise, have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.